0: Finding in our seats, start finding a place to sit, okay, 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 all right, well I will be um, leading us home tonight for the rest of our time as a Jonathan, who's in my peer team, announced this event on Friday night. He said, we're going to be having some great teaching from Garrett. And then he just moved on. So we'll see if I can show him I also am capable of great teaching. I don't know. Um, But I did want to do a couple of thank yous. uh, all these slides, people were like texting during this thing, like, who made these slides? It was not me or Garrett. Um, we probably wouldn't have slides if it was up to me or Garrett. So Angela made these slides. And everyone, oh, probably everyone I'll thank is not in here if I had to guess, but, um, but Jalen and Red are in here. They're doing all of our AV tonight and doing a great job. I think we're troubleshooting right now, trying to get some slides up. Um, And Mandy and Paul planned all the food, so make sure and thank them. We also have two staff birthdays tomorrow. Um, Becca Wilson from up at UNT, yeah, yeah, and then my beautiful wife, Sarah, over there. So um, I don't really want to sing over the mic. Who's starting it? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, and then the last, the last uh, group I want to thank is you guys for showing up to learn tonight. Um, this, is a, this is a tough topic, and, and I hope that it's enjoyable, but it was not meant in the first place to be entertaining. Uh, that was not our first goal, and so I commend you for choosing uh, to spend this chunk of time to develop yourselves as disciples, to better equip yourselves for the future, rather than another few hours on your streaming service of choice, um, which I know might be more entertaining, uh, but feed your soul less. Um, As I was thinking about this talk tonight... I was reminded of this this clip. I, I uh, really like the show Thirty Rock. I don't know how many of you have watched that show. It is um, it is kind of a, a crazy show, but it does a lot of commentary on just media and things like that um, in this very zany way. And I was remembering this one thing because I, I think we get when it comes to, to to truth and all of this, our feelings are something that we cannot really tease out of that. And and I think there's so many forces, especially when it goes into entertainment and media and things that are so good at manipulating our feelings and making us feel things um, that maybe we wouldn't feel uh, another time. And so there was this clip from 30 Rock, and I want to show it. Uh, the setup is that there's been this whole conflict and and i don't even remember the whole thing but it was uh but but they have this this video that they show with all this music like one republic secrets and and it's like and everyone like reconciles because this music is playing but nothing has changed in this thing and so uh yeah she comes in to to talk about this let's let's show it you know some people actually craft stories and when the story doesn't have an ending, you don't just create one out of thin air by playing music or having people give each other meaningful looks. Sure, that might manipulate an audience into thinking they're feeling something, but it sucks.
1: Tell me what
0: you want But yeah, I love that. And because I'm like, even how many times I've watched it, I still have some sort of feeling. I'm like, there's nothing going on in this scene. Like, there's no emotional connection happening. But you play the music and have the looks at the right moment, and here we go. And I think we are unaware so often of of just how that plays out in our lives in a million different ways. That we aren't thinking clearly. We're not really thinking at all. But we're experiencing things. So we're going to talk a lot about that tonight. Um, with this whole topic, some of you may want to go much deeper than what we're able to do, even though this seems like a long teaching. Um, even just little pieces of what we're teaching tonight make up whole graduate classes and things like that. There's so much more there. So we gave you some of those resources. I think the one, uh, the one that Garrett talked about earlier isn't in your your binder because it was kind of a late addition, but binder, whatever this packet. But at the underneath the table of contents, it shows some of the main resources that that we've used for tonight. So if you want to go deeper, that's there. Uh, hopefully tonight, I'm going to be doing more the the title piece of this, how to think like a Christian, and so hopefully. What I'll do is give you some tools that you can use. We're going we're gonna to at least start practicing some of those with kind of an ongoing case study throughout the evening. And I also really hope to question some of the assumptions that you have that you didn't even know that you had. Uh, assumptions about what it means to know things, and especially some assumptions about the Bible and how we use it in Christian thinking. So, With that said, let's launch in. The first thing I want to say is that Christians do not get a universal guide to life that covers every situation that we find ourselves in. We just don't get that. You know, Garrett said Christians have to think or we're required to think. That's where this comes from, is that we just don't have that. Some people think the Bible is a guide like that. It has an answer to every question. But it really isn't. And, and when you try to sort of force that argumentation, you're forcing this round peg into this square hole, and we end up trying to, to sort of manipulate the Bible to make it be what we think it ought to be, rather than taking it on the terms that God gave it to us. It didn't fall out of heaven to speak to 21st century American questions. And and the, the profound thing about that is that God could have done that. If he wanted to, he could drop a new Bible every few years out of heaven. He is fully capable. If he can make planets, he can make a Bible, you know, whatever that is. But but he doesn't do it that way. Instead, we have what it is. And so because it is this ancient document rooted in history, rooted in a story, passed down through uh, historical relational processes, A lot of the questions that I ask, the Bible doesn't answer. And here's the other problem. A lot of the questions that the Bible answers, I won't ever ask. (laughs) Because it's not just written to me. It's written to the people of God across the ages. And it has messages for all of us. Some people think that the Holy Spirit answers every question. And so that we kind of end run around the problems we have with the Bible, and we don't have to think because the Spirit will just tell me. I mean, that's Garrett's story about the, the GPS spirit guy. But, but the Spirit doesn't do that. And, and uh, if you try to force him into that square hole... You're going to end up with some funky interactions with the Spirit because you're going to end up giving God credit for some really destructive things in your life that were just your impulses. And then, of course, some people think they know it all already. They, they are the guide to life, but they don't. And so it leaves us with the reality that we have to think. We have to think. We have to learn to think. We have to work to think. So what does it mean to think Christianly. To think like a Christian. To think like a Christian should be thinking. I don't think it's something that we think about enough. So much of what we get we just sort of hear from other people and we cobble together a set of beliefs based on some sermons and some things our parents said and some things we read and some things we heard on TV and you know or in in whatever shows we're into and we just kind of get it together. Often it doesn't even fit together very well. It's like a puzzle where things kind of, we've got pieces to a bunch of different puzzles, and we just sort of lay them out in something that looks kind of like a, pic, you know, a picture. And if I don't look too close, I don't really notice it doesn't all fit. I don't really notice the gaps. But it doesn't stand up to any sort of scrutiny. So where do we start? Because I'm gonna do a lot of foundational things today. What does it mean to think Christianly? I think we have to figure out where do we begin And the place that I want to begin is with creation. I think everything for us as Christians, we have to go back to the beginning to lay some groundwork. I think too often as Christians, we've been guilty, especially in certain reformed circles, of going back and thinking that God's redemptive movement in the world, redemption, is the foundational Christian doctrine, but it really isn't. That that comes after a lot of other parts of the story. Creation is where all of this begins when God makes everything and he says that it's good. He doesn't say that it's perfect, he doesn't say that it's finished. He just says that it's good in the same way that I could look at a baby and think like, that is very good. But I don't want it to stay like that. If it stays like that too long, we're like, something's not good anymore. right? It's supposed to grow up. So there's an expectation. And then as that baby grows up, we start seeing some things that are like, that's not good right? You know, there's defiance and selfishness. They learn mine before they learn how to say, you know, I love you or anything like that. We get, we get those things. And so things go wrong and there's a need for redemption, but we have to start at the beginning. So I want to start with creation and the human vocation, because this is where I think is, is helpful for us. That at the beginning, God made humans and he gave them a job to do. And what he didn't give them was the great commission, right? God doesn't tell Adam and Eve, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. He doesn't start there, right? No, what he does is he calls them to be gardeners, right? I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. This is a wild place. And so you are going to be shaping the reality here. So, and and this is the beginning of a lot of our FOJ studies. A lot of you have been wrestling with that, that God comes and we see him giving light and life and order to this crazy place. And then he makes humans and he says, you're supposed to look like me. And so what is the expectation? We only know a couple things about God so far. And that it's someone who gives life and light and order to things. And so that is the human vocation. It's permanent. It's about cultivating the kind of world that God wants this to be. And that is our generic human vocation. We all are called to that. And it's permanent in the sense that even in the imagery that the scripture gives us of the new creation at the end of all of this age, we're still doing that stuff. We live in a city and and we're still doing all of these kinds of things. It doesn't present this as a wholly different kind of creation, but as a continuation of this one. So we start in a wild garden and then we get to this midpoint that we would call Revelation and we're in a garden city. Things have moved forward and are going to continue to. But then we get a second vocation, And that's where I I would say salvation and the Christian vocation. But this is a temporary emergency situation. Something has gone wrong in this world. Things are awry. And so we have to participate in redeeming the world. And that's where the Great Commission comes in. Creation and the human vocation calls us to love God, to love our neighbors, to do our best to produce His goals in the world the emergency situation is like, we've got to pull together a people of God who can actually start doing this stuff again, who can do it the way that God wanted to do it. And so we have to be careful as we do this thinking like a Christian thing, not to fall into the first trap that I think we often fall into, which is to think that we, we should only think in terms of our Christian vocation. That if we're not thinking about the Great Commission, it's not spiritual, You know, if I'm going to work as an engineer or a nurse or if I'm, you know, staying home with my kids for the evening or if I'm out hanging out with a friend or like those things aren't spiritual. They don't have anything to do with God. And so everything that's spiritual is when I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying and I'm, you know, sharing a gospel presentation with someone. But actually, ironically, That is secularism. That is secularism. Secularism, as Garrett talked about, is that worldview that teaches that there's a a distinction, a, a break between the spiritual and the secular parts of our lives. And so, somewhere along the way, Christians just swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. The truth is, everything that we do is spiritual, everything that we do matters. And so we can't separate out some things are Christian thinking areas and some things are just worldly thinking areas. No, if I'm a Christian, I have to think like a Christian everywhere. What I don't mean by that is that we have to have some sort of Bible verse stock answer for every kind of issue at all. And that's what we're going to dig into here in just a minute when we start talking about our different resources. But I also want to talk about two fundamental convictions that I have. And these are both based on the idea, um, which isn't up here, that God is good. So if, if God is good, I think we can then assert these two things. The first is that because God is good, if he gave us a job to do, he is going to give us what we need for that job. Because he's not a gotcha kind of God. You know, he didn't set Adam and Eve up for failure, go do this, but you know, you're gonna screw it up, and then I'm gonna you know, stand back and laugh at you. He will fully resource us for what we need, for our vocations as humans and as Christians. He won't give us a job and not give us what we need to do it. That does not mean he will give us everything that we want to be able to do that job. He'll give us what we need. The second is that God will fully resource you for your specific vocation, whatever role you play in bringing shalom to the world. But again, sometimes I think that we think that means I need to be right about everything. I need to know everything. I need to understand everything. I think if there's one thing we can learn from history, it's that God can often get done what he really wants done without humans knowing and understanding everything. And so maybe you being right and you knowing everything is not one of God's major priorities. Might make the connection that the one thing that he told Adam and Eve they didn't need to be fully resourced for their vocation in the garden was to know good from evil. They didn't need that. He could handle that part of it if they would just trust him. And so often it is our search for knowledge and understanding that can even put us at odds with God. So let's talk about these five resources. I'm going to give you five resources. Four of these are somewhat famous. Sometimes uh, talk about them as the Wesleyan quadrilateral, but I'm going to add one to that that comes from John Stackhouse. Some of you may remember he spoke at our our winter camp a couple years back. Um, And so uh, these are going to overlap a lot. Uh, and I'll I'll point that out in different ways, and they're going to influence one another in significant ways, but I think teasing them out and being able to look at them individually will be really helpful to us in this. Did we lose our slides again? How long do you think? We don't know. Great. Okay, number one. Number one is experience, Experience. So when I talk about experience, what I mean is uh, my experience, but also other people's experience. The experiences that I and other people have is one of the resources that we have to bring to bear on our thinking. Those experiences can certainly be external, things that I see and observe and feel in the world. They can also be internal experiences, the things that I have felt and experienced and thought. All of those things are resources for us. They can be physical, they can be be spiritual, but we all know when it comes to our own experience that we should both trust and mistrust our experiences. Just think about your own memory, right? Right? At times, we, we, we do trust our memory, but we've also learned the tough lesson that we need to mistrust our own memory at times. It's kind of like when I go out to that parking lot, and I know where I parked, and someone stole my car, right? But then a little while later, like I find my car, and I'm like, oh yeah, I did park there this time, but last time... I know I parked there, or whatever it was. I remember one time, the very first time I got with um, Lawrence, he had come down from Denton. We met in Frisco, and I'm like the least observant person ever. Like, I, I drive a black little SUV. Like, I could walk up to a white SUV and try to get in it. Like, it, there's no telling what I'll try to get in. And so we were walking through this parking lot for a long time, looking for my car, trying to find it. And... Um, And finally, he's like, why don't you use the clicker? Like, you know, see if it'll do. And I'm like, okay. And so we're standing like there's a car between us. And I did it. And guess which car was my car? It was the one between us as we talked. I don't know what that was doing, but I just thought of it. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we mistrust our own experiences. Think about things like hearing your own voice on a recording. You're like, I did not sound that stupid. I'm pretty sure I sounded. Or watching yourself on a video. So our experience of things is, is a subjective experience. Our experiences are both trustworthy and untrustworthy. And extreme circumstances can change our experience and even make it less Reliable at times, I remember reading a little while ago there 's been a lot of research on memory, and one of the things that they 're finding is that uh, the more time okay. i 'm back on okay that the more times we think about something, the more time we access a memory, the more that memory changes that every time we think about it. We've kind of changed it a little bit. So we might think that like, you know, if, if Zoe and I had lived through the same like car accident 20 years ago and I tell that story every week and Zoe hasn't thought about it in all that time that I would have the more accurate memory. But what they find is actually the opposite is true. That Zoe can give those details in greater, you know, accuracy than the one who's thought about it over and over and over again. And so our memories can change. And two people can have the same experience and yet experience it pretty differently, right? We know that. I mean, think about growing up in your family and maybe you and a sibling, how you, you know, basically the same experience, but we'd experienced it pretty differently. I read about a, a study on pain one time. This guy was in a, in a military hospital, and so he had uh, some severe burns on one half of his body, and he was just intrigued by this, uh, by, by the different ways these different people experience pain, so they got this, this vat of water that was like heated to, I don't remember, it wasn't, wasn't quite at, um, at a boiling point, but it was like a very painful, like over 200 degrees temperature, and the doctors had said like, okay, you can't leave, any part of you in this for more than, you know, I don't remember, 90 seconds or something, because you'll start to cook, basically. And, um, and so then they would, they took volunteers from all throughout this hospital and had them put their arm in this. And how long can you keep it in there? That was all the, that was all the experiment was. And what they found is that people who had had extreme things, burns, amputations, things like that, were able to keep their arm in there for the entire 90 seconds and people that had come to the hospital for relatively minor and painful things were like five seconds. I'm out of this thing. And so you find that this, this objectively exact same stimulus is experienced very differently by different people based on other experiences that they've had. So just because something was positive for me, it doesn't mean it would be for everyone and vice versa. Going to the same church, going to the same high school, having the same friend, dealing with a particular struggle, you know, coping with certain experiences, or even coping with the, the sinful things that that we do. You know, what is really destructive in one person's life, another person seems to get away with. So we have to be careful not to flatten out our experiences. And I think this is really important for us just as a side note for Christian ethics because I think sometimes rather than thinking about what's right and wrong, we, we sort of make it where we have to sort of sell what's right to ourselves or to other people. Like it's, it only matters if it's going to hurt you, you know? Um, and, but again, that's kind of like saying we... Uh, I think i wouldn't do this. It's kind of like saying, let's only teach our kids not to steal if they are guaranteed to go to prison if they steal. You know, it's like if, if anyone can get away with stealing, then it doesn't really matter if they steal because it didn't hurt them. See, we don't teach our kids not to steal because, because we know it's going to come back to bite them. Some people get away with it. We teach our kids not to steal because we don't want to live in a society of thieves. Because what we do affects the whole. Because there's an aggregate impact to these decisions. And that's where I think, again, a lot of times our, our logic around drug use or around alcohol or around you know, sex between two consenting adults or all of these kinds of things, we're not really doing Christian ethics We're just doing this sort of individualistic, selfish thing of I can do whatever I want to do as long as I can get away with it. But that's not really the basis of how a Christian thinks about things. So all that tells us that we have to test our experiences. We have to test our experiences. We even have to test our spiritual experiences. I remember... um, one of our, our past winter camp speakers um, comes from a, a more uh, charismatic uh, background and, and very much believes in, in spiritual warfare. And he's, but, but one of the things that he was sharing, he said, but I've realized that a lot of demon possession can be cured with a hot meal and a good night's sleep. It's amazing what starving, sleep-deprived people will experience. And it's not really spiritual, even though it feels that way. So we have to test our own experiences. We have to test other people's experiences of which we can only ever have their own accounts. So we can listen carefully. We can ask good questions. But we can't ever assume that an experience tells me the truth in its fullest form. And so we have to think carefully about how our experiences should shape our thinking. But here's the real kicker. In one sense, all of these other resources I'm going to talk about tonight have to come to us through our own experience of them, right? I, can't, I can only read the Bible as I experience reading it or hearing it. It's all an experiential thing. And so I think we value experience very highly in our culture, but experiences and the feelings that, that we experience can lie to us. They're a resource, but they really need these other things to push back, just like these other things need experience to push back. So here's what I want you to do, and we're going to do this a couple times throughout, is uh, you have some space just at the very back of your packet, the end of that last page, and then on the, on the back, and I want I to take some notes as we go through, and I want to take a tricky topic. And we're not going to think through this topic, but I want you to, to think just with a friend next to you, or if you want to work by yourself, you can, just for a couple of minutes, what experiences, whether yours or others, are available to you, something you could access as resources to thinking through the topic of what should we think as Christians about gender and biological sex and all of the, the various kinds of transgender kinds of issues going on in our culture? What are the resources? So it's a big topic. We're not going to have any answers to that tonight, but I do want you to start thinking through how you might go about thinking through this topic Christianly. So just take two or three minutes Again, here in that blank space, right, experience, and then start kind of brainstorming together. What are the experiences that you could have access to as resources? Go. Okay, I'm going to keep going just for sake of time. So hopefully you got some things. People you could consult, ask about that. You could spend time reflecting on your own. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that we experience those topics. Okay, the second one I ta- want to talk about is Tradition. Tradition. It it comes from the Latin traditio, which means, I don't know if I said that right, but it sounds kind of Italian, which means to hand over something that's been handed down or handed over to us is what tradition is. So we are recipients of a wide range of traditions because we're each a part of so many different groups, right? We're a part of national groups, religious groups, academic, family, ethnic, social groups, clubs, friend groups, etc. And each of those groups sort of implicitly expect us to receive those, their traditions willingly and fully participate in them. Sometimes we even have, you know, tensions between those groups. You know, some of you are experiencing that with family and going off to college or, you know, uh, your, your church group versus friend groups. I was thinking back like when Sirac was in ROTC. Did y'all know that? That was an important week of his life. But, <laughs> you know, wearing that uniform on Fridays really messed with his tradition of being cool. And so he had to make a, a choice. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, so here's, here's two different groups. I've got a friend group and I've got this organizational group. And, and there's a clash of values there. And so I've got to make some, some choices. And so the the image that I want to give you, the the metaphor I want to give you, is that we have to do a lot of laundry. And and I like this picture because I I do think wearing clothes is often reflective of a lot of different traditions. So like last weekend, I was in San Diego, and in one 24-hour period, you know, I wore like athletic clothes to go hiking. I wore a suit to officiate a wedding. I wore casual clothes to walk around the city. And those are all traditions. And it's just kind of in a short period of time, we just find ourselves changing clothes. But I mean, like, could I hike in a suit? Sure. I mean, it, it does the job. It wouldn't be comfortable. You know, could I do the wedding in athletic clothes? I did do the rehearsal in shorts and a t-shirt because of traffic. And um, it wasn't my favorite. But but they're just traditions. And we bring different traditions of thought to different groups and different environments. And it's all based on sort of what what has been handed down. I found a quote that said, we become different versions of ourselves in order to best fit into this or that culture. Have you experienced that? You know, you go home, you go hang out with your friends, you go sit in class, we become different versions of ourselves. I don't think that's the same thing as what Garrett was saying we shouldn't do about values right? Because I go to class and I just sit quietly and look at the front. It would be weird if I did that with my friends, you know, for very long, or if I went home and just sat quietly and faced one wall for two hours. Like, you know, it's like, but we have traditions. So there's obviously great strength and great weakness in tradition. We can be constrained Or, you know, reassured in very Christian ways of thinking and acting and also in very unchristian ways of thinking and acting because of traditions. I find that it's easy to leave behind my focus on worldly things when I'm singing a worship song about the cross in church on Sunday morning. It's also easy to focus on physical beauty when I'm at the gym. And so we have to think about our different traditions that that are wrapped up in the different environments and groups that affect each of us. So I want you to just take one second. I want you to think about one of those. Share one tradition that sort of affects the way you think and act in a certain setting with a certain group or something. Just think of one and share that quickly. Okay, so hopefully you get the point there. Tradition has to be sifted through and interpreted. We can't just take it without thinking about it. What is truly good? What, what traditions have been handed down to me, and they're, they're off-center maybe, but they're still useful for making something good? What, what things are seriously compromised, but maybe still the least bad option that we have? Because sometimes that's what we have to pick, right? Is the least bad option. What needs to be avoided because it's simply evil? Some traditions are just evil. So we need a spectrum of thought here, not just sort of a binary good, bad, right, wrong kind of thing. We have to be able to think more deeply. So, think about you know, the various rituals and traditions that might go into joining a new organization there 's a range of things, all sorts of things, from honoring and welcoming, and there would be a lot of different ways to do that to you know extreme kinds of hazing and things that really hurt and uh, defraud and damage people on the other extreme so hazing is not a good thing; honoring people is, and there 's a whole range of things. In the middle. But all of those are traditions. Here's a big thing that I think we have to think about is that those of us who are in positions of authority or comfort or esteem are by definition the ones who have benefited the most from tradition. Whoever's in power currently are the ones who benefit the most from the traditions from the way that things have been handed down to us right now. And so that means that our own attitudes, if we find ourselves in that place, are the most suspect. Our own attitudes towards these things have to be the most, we have to be the most suspicious about the attitudes of those who benefit the most. So we could certainly think about white males in our, in our culture, but also we could probably just think about smart, middle-class, college-educated people in our culture, that we should suspect ourselves. You are very privileged if you get to go to college and live in the United States of America. So I give us those warnings, but tradition really is amazing. The things that have been handed down really are amazing because tradition gives us access to all of the great minds of the past, both Christian and not. Most of what you've been taught in school has been handed over to you by someone else, right? Tradition gives us endless sources to learn from and interact with and grow from, So think about all the traditions that we interact with daily, national anthems, folk songs, proverbs that we use, medicines that we take, rites of passage, different kinds of uniforms and outfits, the holidays that we celebrate, the ways that we greet and say goodbye to one another, hierarchies, hymns, architectural traditions, poetry, liturgies. We have all, we're just surrounded by these things. We're constantly surrounded by significant times and places and words and actions and objects. And we as Christians have to mine those. I'm using like like being a miner, digging to find their value. Digging for deep values rather than just dismissing them because they're old or came from someone else. That's just silly. Dismissing traditions simply because they're from the past would simply demonstrate stupidity. We all use tradition in our faith. And as Christians, I think sometimes we have, especially if you're of the the Protestant persuasion, which I think most of us are, we think like, oh, well, tradition is something that just like Catholics and Orthodox Christians care about. But that is not true. As much as the, the Protestant cry has been like, only scripture none of us uses only scripture because we even have traditions about how we read and interpret scripture. We didn't come up with all that last week. You didn't come up with any of it. Not to mention that the scripture itself has been handed over to us from our older brothers and sisters in the faith. In a process that isn't nearly as clean and clear cut as some of us would like to believe. So, tradition shouldn't be a harness that guides our every move. Get the image there of of like an animal harnessed. Tradition shouldn't be a straitjacket that keeps us in uncomfortable and unhelpful positions against our better judgment. But instead, tradition should be a closet of outfits that we have access to. Not only clothing, but other useful tools for the journey. A closet of outfits that we can select, but that does not mean we need to wear all of them all the time. So I do have a clip here too, another old show, but this one's from Friends. You hide my clothes I'm wearing everything you own Oh my god That is so not the opposite Of taking somebody's underwear Look at me I'm Chandler Could I be wearing any more clothes Maybe if I wasn't going Commando I'll tell you It's hot with all this stuff on I uh I better not do any, I don't know, lunges. (laughs) But no, that, that was the image that I got of like, sometimes I think we just try to load on all of the traditions that have been handed on to us. And we can't wear all of them at once. We can't simply put on a previous generation's way of thinking and doing everything much less put on layer upon layer of previous generations' ways of thinking and doing everything. But we can try them out, study them, and use those to design what we need for today. So we need to consult traditions with respect and realism. We need to be realistic about the past, as Garrett was talking about, some of the, the ways we talk about the, the past in even our own country. It's almost like there's two narratives. There's one where it's this terrible place and everyone was terrible all the time, and one where it was this perfect utopia and everyone was wonderful all the time. You know it's like, no, like, this is, it was like it is today. It's a mixed bag. And we can learn from both the good and the bad if we will be realistic about them. But we also need to be respectful about those. That these were people doing their best. And just like so often in in our relationships and stuff, I mean, you know, a lot of my friends and, and family and people like they, I do my best. The problem is my best just isn't very good sometimes you know and and probably you relate to that as well so we res- we consult them with respect and realism chesterton said respecting tradition means giving our ancestors a vote in our deliberations we give them a vote not all the votes we don't give our ancestors all the votes but some votes and then that frees us both from being a slave to the past where our ancestors get to tell us what to do, but it also frees us from being a slave to the present, where whatever everyone 's sort of thinking right now, we just assume they must be right. He called that um, <laughs> he was talking about the the living and the dead, this democracy that allows people, even who can 't walk anymore because they 're dead still get a vote, Uh, but he called the people, he says, the the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. In other words, because you just happen to be up, we assume your voice is more important than someone who died, when the reality is you may be really dumb compared to them. (laughs) You may have no wisdom compared to them. So you don't lose your votes in this democracy simply because you happen to have died. So in our faith and in regards to scripture, the tradition of how the whole scripture has been interpreted should, as a starting place, take precedence over our novel new understandings of scripture. So in other words, I'm saying uh, when we look at 2,000 years of how Christians have thought about the Bible, understood it, we should give that a place of honor in our thinking about the scripture rather than just whatever we've come up with in the last five or 10 years. Doesn't mean they're right and we're wrong, but we should listen to what a lot of people have thought for a long time. And that shouldn't prevent us from listening for what the Spirit of the Lord is saying today, because God has given us other resources as well. And they also inform and reform our understanding of the Scripture. So let's go back to our case study, back to gender. What, are tra- what traditions are at our disposal? What traditions are there as resources for you? What have people in the past handed over to us in terms of understandings of gender and sex? How might those things inform your thinking? So think even in terms of like traditional gender roles, um, our society and others. Uh, so just maybe have, uh, jot down a couple of those, an idea of how each might be potentially uh, helpful or unhelpful. And I'll just give you a couple minutes again to, to mark some of that down with a neighbor. Go. Okay, so just to make sure we're clear, we're taking the same case study, gender, biological, sex. What resources does tra- do you have in terms of traditions that have been handed over? We're just jotting down resources that things you could access. All right, let's keep, let's keep plunging forward here. Hopefully you got some, some good ideas. These could be much longer discussions. Number three, resource number three, scholarship, or reason, or uh, you know, fields of study, the kinds of things that are going on in our universities. So everything that comes from the academic disciplines, the orderly investigation of and reflection upon the world. And so you can easily start to see how this can overlap our other resources. It includes all of the sciences and all that our intellect can bring to bear. I would say that Christians should not be anti-intellectual or anti-science. That is a knee-jerk reaction to a power struggle that's, that's been going on really for hundreds of years in our culture. It's not a carefully thought out position based on our vocations as humans and as disciples. You know, once upon a time, all of these universities, the original universities, were all run by Christian clergy. And as the sciences began to emerge in their own right, There was a power struggle within those universities about whether those disciplines would have freedom to sort of take the knowledge where it goes, or whether their findings would be controlled and censored by the ministers who were in power. Ironically, now the shoe is sort of on the other foot, and we have the, the hard sciences and things like that are in power. And we, as I mentioned earlier, should always be suspicious of the attitudes of those who have the most to gain from things staying the same. They're the, mo- they, they're the ones who have the most to lose if something changes. And so we see the, the, the universities on the whole become quite anti-faith and anti-religious. And I don't want those things being taught or explored. But we have to remember our human vocation is making shalom in the world, is making everything the way God wants it to be. And there's so many things that go into that, right? We have to figure out things like water purification so people aren't getting sick every time they drink the water that they need to live. We have things like indoor plumbing that have improved our lives in so many ways. We figured out how to fertilize crops. I remember hearing a, a podcast. that They were kind of wrestling with this idea of like the same person producing so much good and so much evil. And they were focusing on this one German scientist back at the, the turn of the 19th to 20th century. And the same guy created, figured out how to isolate nitrogen to make fertilizer for crops. And so up until that point, he's the one that made it possible for this population boom that has happened over the last hundred plus years, because till that point, they just couldn't feed everyone in the world. There was always people starving and starving to death. And so then all of a sudden we figured out how to grow so many more crops. Amazing thing, right? Gave life to millions, maybe billions of people. But he's also the same guy that created mustard gas. That was just one of the the worst weapons that's ever been created. Just awful way of killing people. So we can use these things for good or for evil, but they are a part of God's world. So Christians shouldn't resist intellectual engagement. We need to be at the forefront of it if we're going to bring those things to bear for God's kingdom and in the ways that will actually be a blessing to others and not just in the ways that will be a profit to a few. We are striving to be fully functioning human beings, living out our vocation of caring for the world. And we need scholarship to be that and to do what we're supposed to do. Simply in order to keep living, we need science to help us with finding, procuring, and preparing water and food. We need the sciences to live out our calling of caring for ourselves, of caring for the people around us, and of caring for creation. God is interested in human flourishing, not just human survival. So we need to study a whole range of fields as we experience the delight of discovering this marvelous world and universe that God created for us, we get the added benefit of a greater appreciation of God. I remember, you know, just growing up, you kind of, I guess I only really thought about the world, and it's kind of, and this would probably be where Christians were for a long time. Like we sort of, I mean, this place seems... Huge, You know, even just our planet to us seems huge. It's like, man, God made all of this. And then they figured out, actually, like, this is a part of this bigger solar. We're like a tiny part of the solar system. And that's just a tiny part of this galaxy. And that's just the, the tiniest part of this bigger thing. And now they're all theorizing that maybe there's a bunch of universes and all this. It's like at every stage, my concept of God... Had to grow. Physics has grown my view of how big and smart God is. So I think if we really understand our, voc- our vocation, this global overarching vision that, that God has given us, there should be Christian enthusiasts in every discipline. There's no actual conflict between any field of study and Christianity or between what's good in any culture and the gospel. The good news doesn't just correct and add to what we find in the world. It can also validate and celebrate the good things that we find in the world. So think about things like motherhood and fatherhood. There are good moms and dads all over the world, not just among Christians, right? We don't have to act like there's nothing good if Jesus' name isn't directly slapped on it. All that is good is a gift from him. That's what the scripture says. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So, I'm not going to spend much more time on that one, but let's do our case study again. When we start thinking about things like gender, biological sex, what resources are available from science, from the social sciences? I know most of us have probably not studied those things, but I want you to start thinking, like, what might I go look into? What might be the questions there? Where could you look? So take a couple minutes and jot down some things there. Okay, hopefully you got... A handful of good ideas written down there. We're starting to see this rounder picture of when we, take, when we come to a complicated topic, we got a lot of resources to consult. Number four is art. This is the one that, that Stackhouse adds, and I think it's really helpful. Art as a resource for Christian thinking. Art making is a means of exploring and expressing what is, what is not, and even what might be. I remember going, um, one of our Sikkim trips, we went in Seattle, they had like a science fiction museum. and I'm not like a big science fiction person. And most of it was like memorabilia from TV shows and movies and things like that. But the the entry room was... Uh, just kind of a you know reflection on the genre itself and how science fiction has been this way to to sort of do the sociological experiments that we could never ethically do you know to to explore ideas to their end and to figure out what but yeah what, what if this happened what what would that do and and to kind of go there. And, and I got way more interested. I've read so much more science fiction since then. And some of it is, is really interesting for that. Because exploring what is and what is not and what might be can be good for our thinking. Art can inform and provoke us. It can warn and encourage us. So think about the, the dystopian novels that are so popular among the, you know, the young adult set. I remember you know reading Hunger Games um, back when that was you know, just coming out. And it, it really does warn against so many things. It's, it's exploration of violence as entertainment, of that kind of uh, entertainment and the way that it serves to prop up powerful people in the state, of how media can be a servant to power, all of those kinds of things you can you can do things in a novel that you can't or a movie that you just can't do in real life. And you can explore those ideas. Art is short for artifice, which means to make. A work of artifice is is making something. So we can't really separate this out from our bigger thing of of thinking because when we interpret something, we make an opinion. We're doing our own sort of art here. We might even ask one another when we see something or hear something like, what do you make of that? Art isn't some separate category from our thinking, but it is helpful to tease it out. Different art forms are different languages. They're different languages and each has its own ability to communicate differently about different things. So rock music can take us places that a symphony orchestra can't, and vice versa. It expresses certain experiences and emotions and concerns more powerfully than others. And we could talk about that the same with a novel versus a painting versus a dance versus a meme. They each have the the, the places and ways that they are very effective at communicating something. C.S. Lewis argued that everything is real. Remember, he wrote all these great theological books, but he also wrote a lot of novels. Everything is real. He said the question isn't, is this real or not? But in what respects is this real? Or in what ways might this be real? But it's also not just about reality, because art suggests things to us. And suggestions can be helpful in ways that facts and arguments are not. We know that just from our discussions with each other, right? You know, there, there's a way when I'm like, let me just suggest an idea. Because if, if, if it's like, no, you have to prove that to me before I will consider it. It's like, well, we've kind of lost our ability to move forward in this conversation suggestions can be helpful in ways that facts and arguments aren't the way forward in our thinking often involves of thinking of what is not yet of what if or what might be some great breakthroughs have occurred in visions and thought experiments and not in actual labs. I remember um, I went to, in, to DC a bunch of years ago with Brad Davis and uh, we, we did a ton of different museums. But we went to this like international spy museum and it was really cool. And they had so many things from like the cold war. I mean, it was like, every single version of makeup made into a gun or a knife and every kind of book and anything you would carry I mean, there's lots of guns. You know, everything's hidden in all these things and vehicles and all this stuff. But the thing that was most interesting is they were talking about how this was all, you know, during the Cold War. And of course, this was when the Bond movies were so popular. And they were basically saying, like, people thought that James Bond, you know, that, that that whole thing was like, oh, here's what the CIA is doing. We're kind of figuring that out. Now let's like show the culture. And they were like, actually, now that everything's sort of been, you know, unclassified and released, it was exactly the opposite. The CIA would see things on Bond movies and then go make it. And so <laughs> they were getting their ideas from art for the things that they were able to do. Metaphors are a form of art. They can expand our list of options. They can clarify our comprehension of problems. They can open our imaginations to innovation. I think about the book of Revelation, which I think is an amazing work of art. And we lose so much when we think of it as just some sort of like roadmap to the future rather than an opportunity to open our imaginations to see the world as God sees it. I remember um, right near at the beginning of Revelation, John just says, uh, on Sunday when I was in the Spirit, I turned and I saw. And then he begins to describe. And, and uh, I remember hearing Brady Bobbink one time saying, Revelation is what the world looks like to a man or woman who is in the spirit. So I'll do this activity with the with the apprentices when I teach their eschatology class where instead of like us piecing through Revelation line by line and trying to figure out if the locusts are a certain you know model of helicopter and which horn is Russia and you know all this kind of stuff, is that I'll, I'll just say, I want you to, to sit and close your eyes and I'm going to read you the book and I want you to imagine all of the sights and sounds and even tastes and feelings that it describes and let this powerful imagery wash over you and then let's talk about what you Heard A very different experience when when we take it on its own terms. So Stackhouse, I think I gave you this quote so you could kind of chew on it, but he just says, art nudges us, gestures to us, even dashes ice water across our faces so that we exclaim, wow, I never saw that before. It's not all there is to the matter, of course, but still there's something here that I simply must consider. Art reminds and it surprises, it cajoles and it berates, it seduces and it shocks, it disturbs and it assures, it unites and it divides, all so that we apprehend and interpret the world differently and better. And that is a set of tasks obviously helpful to the project of responsible thinking. So back to our case study, what resources, existing or potential, (laughs) My art bring to your thinking about gender and biological sex. Take a couple minutes and think through that. (laughs) Okay, okay. Again, a great one. That's a great one to share uh, with each other. I know I read a novel, um, pretty famous sci-fi novel called *The Left Hand of Darkness* uh, by Ursula K. Le Guin, and she explores a world where humans only have one gender. And this man comes from outside to try to kind of live among these people. Um, and it, it does explore some of these ideas. Pretty, pretty interesting stuff to sort of, for someone to sit and think so deeply for so long about what, what might that be like? What are the dynamics here? Okay, last resource. The big one that we've been leading up to is Scripture. But hopefully, I mean this might be where I make some of you mad. We'll see. We'll go. Um, I want to start with I want to start with some bigger question of what is the Bible? Because I don't want us to settle for a simplistic answer. So a bunch of things I want to say. First is that your translation of the Bible, whatever translation you choose, comes from a particular network of scholars and churches. And that means that not every scholar in every relevant field was consulted for your translation. It's limited. Previous translations have been consulted, or at least known by those translators. I've I've at least never heard of a Bible translator who had never heard of the Bible before they started translating it. And they can't get those previous translations out of their mind as they work. They're there. It's a part of their experience. We like to imagine that they're translating from the original. We talk about the original. What do you picture when you hear the original text? But the reality is that the Bible behind our Bible, the original, is actually made up of thousands of fragments they're held all over the world by different scholars and museums. And we have to sort of, you know, go from that. They, they generally match very, very well, but not in every jot and tittle, as the King James would call it. <laughs> At least some of the books of the Bible are clearly stitched together from previous documents. And I say clearly because there's a lot of debate about this with a bunch of books. But things like the book of Kings refers to its sources. It talks about the sources that it's using. And then Chronicles clearly quotes long passages from Kings. While also changing things, adding things, cutting things. The Gospels seem to have relied on some sort of common source material or common collection of Jesus' sayings or maybe on one another in various ways. There's a lot of study there. But these are not all being produced 100% independently. So we have fragments before the Bible becomes the Bible, and we have fragments after it becomes the Bible, what we don't have is some single intact Hebrew version of the Old Testament dating from Old Testament times, or some single intact Greek version of the New Testament dating from the first century. It's just what we don't have, and most likely never will. Even with individual books, the question of what an original copy would look like can be tricky, and that question is different from book to book. But nevertheless, we don't have a single one of those. We don't have an original copy of a single book of the Bible. So what we do have is what the people of God who came before us recognized as Scripture, as coming from God, and have carefully preserved and treasured and copied and passed down and handed over to us as God's word. And so we need a theology of inspiration that can include God overseeing and inspiring that entire process from writing, editing, assembling, preserving, translating, so that we have his word to us. And not a theology of inspiration that requires a book that fell completed out of heaven and we found it. Because we didn't get that. (laughs) If that's what's required, we don't have that. So I think on one end of this spectrum, Christians believe that God selected particular authors and editors, and what emerged is word for word the exact text God wanted us to have. Some of you probably believe that. I would say on the minimum end of the spectrum, it seems to me that Christians need to believe at least that God used literary processes to get us his message— But across the spectrum, the Bible comes to us as God's word, not just as literature. And he expects us to read it and take it seriously as his message to us. But the Bible is not the Quran. See, the Quran, Muhammad claimed to have received by dictation. And so Muslims consider it to have been authored by God alone And that it is perfect in every way, aesthetically and grammatically, as well as morally and factually. But the Bible never makes that sort of claim. I mean, maybe about a few verses here or there that God authored or dictated to people and were recorded. But not of the Bible as a whole. So the Bible never makes that claim, even though various Christians have. This idea that we have of inerrancy, that the Bible does not err, has no errors in it, emerged really in the 19th century. It's actually a pretty new thing in Christian history. It's not nearly as old as we often think, because we've heard it a lot. So I think divine dictation, this idea that God sort of dictated the Bible to its authors, is an oversimplification of this process that we need to root out of our thinking because I think it gives us too low a view of scripture because it doesn't take seriously how God has chosen to reveal his word to us. It only takes the text seriously and not God's methods and intentions seriously. Of every way he could have done it, he chose this way. And I think that says something. And I think we ought to take what it says seriously. No educated readers of the Bible claim that even in the original Hebrew and Greek, there was perfect grammar at every point, for instance. In fact, I talked about Revelation earlier. Um, That's one of the books that is pretty poor grammar. They say it looks, uh, it basically reads like someone who grew up speaking Hebrew wrote it in Greek. So it's immigrant Greek. The grammar is wrong. Things are a little bit off here or there. And you can kind of see, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're using word order from another language. But you can read it. Just like we could, you know, speak to many of you. It's your parents. But we have friends' parents or whatever. We speak to people who English isn't their first language. I can understand them. I hear what they're saying. But it might not be, you know, perfect English that my English teacher would love. So... The Christian claim isn't that the Bible is perfect in that sense. I would say, in fact, it's amazing how much imperfection in the Bible Christians have put up with over the centuries. Think of this for an example. Think of Paul sitting in prison, writing letters. And in those letters, he quotes from the Old Testament But he doesn't quote from the original Hebrew Bible. He quotes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation that they were mostly using. But he's also not quoting from a copy of it sitting in front of him. He's quoting from memory. And so he's either at times purposefully changing some of the tenses and the subjects and things like that to make it fit his text. Or maybe he misremembers it slightly because some of those quotations They're they're fairly accurate, but they're not exact quotations of the Old Testament. And yet we now consider those inexact, approximate quotations as a part of Scripture alongside the original that they're different than. Messy, right? (laughs) Until fairly recently, few churches, much less individual people, could afford a copy of the entire Bible and many church leaders church leaders much less church members didn't have access to all of the scripture it's a pretty new western rich people educated literate people kind of thing so most people in churches in history got by with just part of the scripture and in other parts of the world today many christians only have some smaller portion of the scripture to use as their bible It's only recently in the highly educated and wealthy Northwest part of the globe that we have great translations and original language texts that are available in their entirety, published in a widely affordable editions, available to a mostly literate church. We are the exception, not the rule in the history of Christianity. And so if you've got a view of the Bible and of the Bible's place in the life of a Christian that excludes most Christians who have ever lived from being Christians, you should adjust it. Because that is an incredibly self-centered view of the world. So everywhere else and every when else, Christians have been working with considerably less than the ideal when it comes to the Bible. And yet, God has used the Bible to good effect over the centuries, all over the world, even when the various forms of the Bible available to his people didn't look much like what you have on your shelf or in your phone today. Stackhouse wrote, he said, fights to the death about Bible translations or dogmatic statements of the Bible's flawlessness seem wildly out of keeping with the actual career of the Bible. It's like, we are just obsessed with this. Fights to the death about Bible translations or dogmatic statements of the Bible's flawlessness seem wildly out of keeping with the Bible's actual career over the centuries. I remember I was driving on Spring Creek, the street right over here one day, and I saw a bumper sticker that said, The King James Bible is God's only true inspired word. (laughs) Wow. Again, how incredibly self-centered. Only English-speaking Americans, you know, can, or only English speakers starting, you know, as King James Bible came out in like 1612 or something like that. What was it? 1611, I was one year off. She corrected me. But you know what I'm saying? It's like only people after that even got God's word. It's an amazing thing. I don't know what happened before that. But this does not take away from the progress that's been made. We need the best possible Bibles and the best possible ways of interpreting the Bible for every community. That's just good stewardship of God's word to us. To just accept something less because someone else had less is not good stewardship. So in the face of this complicated book, I have a couple thoughts about how we should use the Bible humbly. And the first is that we should avoid constructing theology and doctrines out of specific words and phrases in the Bible, especially when it's just from a few odd passages, We need to take seriously the whole counsel of God available to us. So we should avoid arguing from our favorite snippets of scripture or even our favorite themes in scripture. A good question, I think, is, is that all the Bible usefully has to say about this question? Is that all the Bible usefully has to say about this question? And to get to that answer, a word search in the Bible isn't going to get you there. So when, when we do our case study thing in a minute, just like looking up man, woman, gender, which probably isn't in there, biological sex, which probably, you know, it's like, ah, it doesn't say anything. Didn't, didn't show up on my word search. It's like, no, we have to think more deeply about what does the Bible say that could be useful for this discussion. So it's not just about when the Bible directly mentions a topic. That's where we often get off into silly places. But also about how foundational ideas inform our understandings of all topics. And also the second thing is that the whole counsel of God should also include the whole whole counsel of God. Not just the scripture, but also the other resources that we've talked about. All of which come to us as gifts of God. Even if they don't offer, uh, uh, occupy the same honored place as scripture. So think about how the natural sciences, the study of history, as a part of this whole, whole council of God, have reshaped our reading and interpretation of scripture. Just over the last few centuries. So we can know things like there wasn't actually a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle that a camel had to kneel to walk through. That was great. But now that we've been able to study and know a lot more, we realize that that just came out in a 12th century commentary and someone just made it up. Great sermon illustration, just completely false. And so, you know, we, we can learn things from history that, that allow us to say, oh, for a bunch of hundreds of years, Jesus' meaning in this text has been obscured to us. And, you know, that's one that's still repeated around because often we don't do our homework. Jesus was using a metaphor that was supposed to be outlandish. We know that the universe is way bigger than the ancients thought it was. And we can see that God was able to design and create the whole dang thing. We understand more what the scripture is saying to us. Because we're not coming from a place of ignorance, but from greater knowledge. And that will continue to grow. So what then is the Bible for? What is the Bible for? I want you to hang in here with me. It is not for being true. The Bible is not for being true. I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm talking about what is the Bible's purpose? Why is it here? In 2 Timothy, Paul says, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, the point is not that the Bible is true. The point is that the Bible is useful. The Bible is not only true in its facts and moral teachings. It is effective as a training tool to transform our lives. Or to say it differently, the Bible is true so that it can be useful. The Bible's fundamental purpose is to tell us what we need to know in order to put our faith in Jesus and receive salvation. The scriptures teach us The scriptures call us to account when we misbehave. They correct us morally and spiritually, and they train us in patterns of right living. They train us in shalom making so that each Christian can do excellent work in the world. So the idea that the Bible is inerrant or doesn't have errors isn't enough, and it's not really the point. Inerrant is just a double negative that means there are no errors, I think infallible that some people use is better because infallible means it won't fail. It doesn't fail to accomplish its purpose. I think it's better though still to say that the Bible is the word of God and it does what God inspired it to do. The Bible is God's word and it does what he inspired it to do. So I think we can say that if a passage needs to be historically reliable to accomplish its purpose, like the accounts of Jesus' resurrection, then as Christians, we should take those things as historically reliable. If another passage is highly stylized, I think about a book like Jonah, which I think is written very much in parable form. Everything in it is larger than life, Everything in it is sort of unrealistic. Do you remember the cows repenting in Jonah? Maybe it's not meant to be a historical reading where cows actually laid down in sackcloth and ashes. But it's highly stylized, but we can trust it to do what it was designed to accomplish. The Bible tells us what we need to know in the way that we need to know it. So the Bible is true, yes, but it is not merely true. It's effective. It assists God's people in transforming humans to be like Christ. And for that task, it has needed to be incredibly versatile, astonishingly versatile over the last 2,000 years. And such a bizarre task has apparently required quite a bizarre book. But God is the prime mover in all of this, not Scripture. God is the one doing the work. The Scripture is useful, but God is the one driving it. So we can't be deistic in our approach to Scripture the Bible isn't our primary authority for faith. God is our primary authority. Do you know what I mean by the word deistic? This was the idea. I remember studying it in, even in American history. A lot of the early um, you know, founding fathers were deists. And so they believed that God had sort of set everything in motion. They would often use the, the metaphor of a clockmaker. You know, he he made it, it's all working. And then he just sort of steps back and let let the processes do what they will. And he just sort of observes it from a distance. But that's not really the message of scripture. So the Bible is not just some sort of clock that God made and now it does its thing separate from him. And that means it can't take the place of God in our lives. We have to learn to hear Jesus's voice through careful and humble reading of Scripture. But we also need to hear Jesus' voice through all of the other resources that God has given us, from biology to opera, from ancient Proverbs to internet memes. So I want you to think, again, our case study, what Scriptures might we bring to bear on the gender discussion? What doctrines and big ideas from the Scripture? Thinking of things like God as the Creator of grace, the idea that you know we're not going to our bodies are going to be resurrected someday. Whatever these things might be, resources to us in our thinking. So, take a couple minutes to jot down some of those, and then we'll go our home stretch. All right. So those are our five resources. So how do we decide? How do we begin to make decisions and pull all of this together? Well, one, I would say that the scripture has authority in our lives. That's one of our fundamental convictions as Christians. The Bible holds a preeminent place among these resources. And a Christian should never decide a matter against what they interpret the Bible to say. But we need to admit that our ability to interpret is limited. Some people are terrible interpreters of the Bible, even though they might be quite gifted and intelligent in other fields. For example, did you know that Isaac Newton wrote a lot more about Bible prophecy than he did about physics? And it was all wrong. 100% of it. That was his big research. Deep revelation studies, all wrong. So we never decide against what we think Scripture says, even while we remain open to improving our interpretation of Scripture over time. But, and here's the key, something that I think is missing so much in our culture today, we can decide not to decide. I don't have to have an answer to everything right now. I don't have to have a powerful conviction. I don't have to claim to have the right answer. Sometimes this is the best option available to us, given the circumstances and the amount of information that we currently have. I remember uh, Sarah telling me a bunch of years ago about one of the young men in her ministry um, telling her that he's like, yeah, I don't really know, I don't, I don't really think women should be preachers. And she's like, oh, okay, well, you know, I preach, I lead the ministry you're in, and like, how are you kind of processing through that? And he's like, well, he's like, I figure I have about a eighth graders level understanding of that doctrine, so I probably shouldn't be making big decisions based on it until I've actually studied it. I'm like, that is a remarkably humble way to approach that you know, to admit, I don't know everything. I haven't studied it. Here's just where I find myself right now. If we find ourselves in this circumstance where we don't seem to have enough to make a decision and it's urgent that we make a decision, we ought to pray. But remember that the goal is not to be right. The goal is to choose whatever option would advance God's purposes in the world. One is about God and his deal, and the other is about me and my deal. I want to be right. The goal isn't to be right. The goal is to choose the option that advances God's purposes in the world. Because God's main concern isn't me being right about everything. And he might occasionally get his purposes done without me believing the right thing about a whole bunch of things. I even think in, in the the scripture, it's interesting because, um, and, and the end of Paul's life is vague. We don't know. The scripture doesn't record it. Um, but we do know that he wrote Romans and and that he was planning to go to Spain. And it seems like from some of the things that he says in Romans, that the reason he wrote that is he wanted to kind of, before he got there to Rome, he wanted them to, to sort of understand his gospel and minister to them so they would supply and pay for his missionary journey on further to Spain. It seems like from everything that we know, he didn't go to Spain. None of that happened. He got arrested and he did end up in Rome, but not as a visit to the church, but in prison and probably died there. And so here's a man who thinks, yes, like I understand what I am doing. Like I have have got this down but God apparently didn't want Paul to go to Spain. He wanted him to write Romans. And Paul being wrong about his purpose is what God, God's purpose is done. So God's concerns are often much bigger than us, and us understanding and knowing everything. The five resources need to be in conversation with each other. They have to be in conversation with each other. And that means we have, to, we have to do this messy work of figuring out how to use them. I know for me, that sounds a little bit overwhelming. You might be thinking the same thing. I've gotten you to, you know, on the last page of your thing list, you know, a few years worth of thinking, right? You know, resources that would take a lot of time and effort to consult. So how could you ever make a decision? But let's remember a couple things. We only have as much of the resources as we have acquired, you only have access to what you've already got. You get access to more. Some of it might be easy. Some of it might be very difficult. But you do not have the sum total of human experience at your fingertips. You don't even have all of your experience at your fingertips. Right? I can't even remember everything that happened in my life. My parents will mention things. I'm like, for my friends. And they're like, you remember when we did that? And I'm like, vaguely. I don't know. You know, it's like I lived through it. I experienced it. And I can't really even access it. And we could play that out in, in the different ones. I may not know very much scripture. I may not have studied any of the science, et cetera. We only have as much of the resources as is in our minds at the time that we're thinking through this. We forget a lot of things that we've already learned, and we can't just hold everything. God made us limited. I can only work with as much of the resources as I choose to think about, Right? Because emotionally, there may be experiences that I don't want to think about. And that's just a reality. And I can only work with my understanding of each. All of them have to be interpreted. So in other words, I might have access to all of Einstein's work, but how much of it do I actually comprehend? (laughs) I remember, you know, visiting Europe and I would walk through those, like, art galleries and they're amazing. I mean, the masters. And I'm like, yes, that is pretty. <laughs> I, and, like, I would feel really good about myself if I'd heard of it. You know, it's like, yes, I have heard of this work of art. I'm a sophisticated artiste. I don't know what, what you call a person. Um, but, you know, what I'm saying it's like, I, I don't understand that stuff. I, don't, I can't access all of what is there at least yet. And so I'm limited. So given all of that, we ought to proportion our belief and behave with appropriate confidence and humility. We ought to proportion our belief. I do remember one of my favorite memories. I'm going to make fun of Sirach. Where are you, Sirach? I'm just going to tell about proportional ascent. Um. (laughs) What... (laughs) I won't, I won't. We'll hold that one close to our heart. Um, no, <laughs> but you know, we, we give a to things proportionally that I'm like, yes, I believe that idea, but I believe it 20% because I don't really know that much about it. I have an eighth grader's understanding of that, right? It's at least theoretically possible that we're mistaken about... Even obvious and important things. That's the point that Garrett made earlier, right? It doesn't feel any different being wrong than being right. It's happened before. I remember in one of my classes my senior year, we were sitting around, um, and this was with like, I had, you know, some of my most brilliant peers, and we were telling like stories of things we'd believed way too long. And and this guy, Ken, who I'm pretty sure has a PhD in math now, I mean, he's like a brilliant man, and uh, is a professor somewhere. He's like, I'm pretty sure like only a couple years ago, like until a couple years ago, I thought like dogs were the males and cats were the females of the same species. <laughs> you know, it's like way too long. Brad used to do that in his sociology classes. He would ask that question, and he had a girl, and she was like college student. She's like, yeah, it was just like a couple months ago, I... Like, people would ask me what my favorite animal was, and I'd always tell them a unicorn, and they would laugh, and I didn't know why. And then she's like, I thought they were a real animal. And people are like, What do you mean? And she's like, There's pictures on the internet. Like, I haven't seen every animal. You know, it's just like, but we all have these kinds of things, right? That we've just sort of, we just kind of, we're just kind of mistaken about it. And so, as such, until I have enough evidence, I don't have to, like, swear up and down that everything I believe is true. You know, we ought to measure our belief in proportion to the evidence, the grounds that we have for that belief. And also proportion our assent in accordance with the importance in whatever the context is, right? You know, so if I'm only, like, 50% sure that someone I briefly met had brown eyes— I probably don't want to like swear up and down that it's true or get in a fight over it in a conversation with someone else because it isn't even really important anyway. But we do that stuff with scripture all the time, right? We just like argue over things that we don't know. I love sitting in cores and they're like, they're like, well, the Bible says, and I'm like, that's from Thomas Jefferson, and the Bible says this, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure you heard that on The Simpsons or something. It's not in the Bible. You know, and then like, and then someone else will quote something out of context or like wrong, and I mean, it's just, who knows? You know, but we just say everything with such deep conviction our interpretations of revelation. I'm like, why does it matter? God wins. He doesn't need your input. And it's not necessary to live out your vocation for him. You need to understand that he's going to win, but you don't need to understand the days and the times. I'm not saying that we can make ourselves believe or not believe something. That is impossible, right? And If I offered you right now a million dollars, if you would believe even for one second that you were sitting on Mars right now, not one of you could take that without lying. You just don't believe it. You know, you could, you could try to lie to yourself. You could try to convince yourself for the money. But even if we just kept raising the amount, it wouldn't work because belief is based on some sort of knowledge or evidence. We have to have grounds for some such a belief. And I'm asking us to cons- to carefully consider the grounds for our beliefs and then be careful what proportion of belief or assent we give based on the evidence for or against. Because most things in life, there's kind of mixed evidence, right? Not only in scripture, but even when we get you know, Garrett used two plus two is four, but when you get into advanced mathematics and advanced physics and advanced phases of any field, things start kind of breaking down. It's not all clear-cut. We're still arguing. We're still trying to figure it out. And this isn't about backing down from a belief because that belief costs us something or because we're mocked for it. That's just emotional stuff. This is about allowing new evidence or current evidence to cast healthy doubt on our current beliefs. You know, that I haven't factored in all of this. Yes, I have a lot of beliefs about scripture, and on most of those, I'm probably more educated than most of you. But I would not say I have a hundred percent, you know, convictions about very many, if any of them. Because I haven't studied all there is to study. And so it's okay for me to say, yes, here is where I am now. Here is what I really think. So that as humble people, we can qualify our assent to our beliefs. We could use phrases like, it seems to me that, as I understand it. We could say things like, certainly, undoubtedly, presumably, probably, apparently, possibly perhaps there's a chance that it's conceivable that you know, you see the spectrum, right? I don't have to just assert everything with the same force because I don't really know what I'm talking about with most things. We don't have certainty about everything, and so we don't need to act like we already do. Imagine your parents' Facebook about politics, right? <laughs> we don't have to act like we know everything. This has gotten the church in trouble over time. See, according to our faith, our fundamental problem is not ignorance. It's sin. Our fundamental problem isn't ignorance. It's not being wrong. It's not a defect of the mind. It's a defect of the soul. And because we're designed the way we are, sin does affect every part of us. Our mind as well as our heart. We have to be realistic that we are inclined towards evil, that we want to believe things that aren't true. We tend to see what we want to see. We tend to hear what we want to hear, or sometimes see and and hear things that we think we ought to see and hear, and to conclude uh, what it would be personally advantageous for us to conclude. And that happens in science labs just as much as it does in religion or romantic relationships or wherever it is. We believe what we want to believe. doesn't make it any less foolish. We just do it. So we should start by admitting what it is we really want to believe. And then we can go about our thinking from that place of honesty. That's one of the things my my dad would say is he's like, when I'm studying a new topic, he's like, I just start with my blank paper and at the very top, I write what I want to believe. I'm just going to be honest with myself from the beginning. And so that's what I want you to do for a second with our case study is I want you to just jot down some thoughts on this topic. What do you want to believe? Just be honest with yourself. And then give an honest assessment of how strongly you should hold your current opinions on the topic based on what you know. What proportion of assent should you be giving to your current opinions? Okay, take just a couple minutes for that, and we'll wrap up. Okay, well, hopefully <clears throat> all of your notes there would give you a roadmap and a place to start some conversations um, and thinking about this topic that we're not going to, you know, dig into today. Um, but something to, to start exploring. And so I want to wrap up just kind of talking a little bit about the spirituality of all of this. That spiritual disciplines help us keep walking with God as we do this whole thinking thing. They keep us connected to him and listening to him. They keep our hearts soft before him, because we have to be the right sort of people with the right sort of heart to be the right sort of thinkers. The scripture affirms that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. So reading scripture and praying and fasting and worshiping and confessing and participating in the sacraments and so many other things help us lose evil appetites and develop good ones. Regular attendance at church helps us remember that the gospel, as crazy as it may sound, is actually plausible and credible. We need those regular reminders because the world is certainly regularly reminding us of its messages. Prayer is obviously basic to Christian thought. If you lack wisdom, ask God. That's what James 1 says. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should should ask God who gives generously and without finding fault. It is my most prayed prayer, is asking for wisdom. Our attitude toward wisdom will determine our acquisition of wisdom. Your attitude toward wisdom will determine your acquisition of it. I remember my brother, um, Cale, asking at one point, like, what does it take to be wise? Like, how does someone become wise? And one of the pieces of advice that he got was to read widely. Fiction, nonfiction, to, to explore ideas, to see things from different perspectives. Because often, wisdom is about that. It's about being able to look at things from all the angles, to see the things that others don't really see. And yet we have this kind of anti-reading culture a lot of times. We're getting dumber. We like to watch things. And certainly there are things that can accomplish some of the same things, but you're not, we're not quite there as a culture where you can just skip the books if you really want to be a deep and wise thinker. I talked about this at our Sikkim back in the early fall, but... Um, you know, talking about people like, I don't really like those kinds of books, or I don't really like reading. And and wrestling with this question, like, would you read any way to bless or impress the woman or man you're infatuated with? Would you read out of gratitude to a parent or friend who's gone blind and needs you to read to them? Would you do it as an act of love for God who sent his word to us and preserved his words for us so that we could be more profoundly prophetic in the way that we live in this world and not just pathetic. So we can grow in wisdom and that love should govern everything. For the Christian, knowledge cannot replace love. Knowledge cannot replace love. Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But neither can love function without any knowledge. So let's look at Paul's prayer to the Philippians as we wrap up. Paul says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight that your love would abound in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then I, I put this and one more quote from Stackhouse because I think he's wrestling here with this thing of like, man, this is hard all this thinking like a Christian stuff is hard. Why doesn't God just give us the answers? Why didn't he just, you know, I saw the matrix. Why don't he just kind of like plug me in and beam it in and then I've got the right answers and I can just do the right things. And so he asked this question, couldn't God give us the results of difficult Christian thinking and decision-making more directly, bypassing those things entirely? Perhaps he could, Although, in at least some cases, it would be difficult to imagine just how things would work. Maybe, in fact, he cannot. Maybe we are such creatures as to benefit best or at all only by God blessing us through various intermediaries. Instant revision of our minds or souls might be too violent for us, or inauthentic, or something bad, such that God must take, as he generally does, The longer, indirect route. Christian thought, I suggest, can be considered helpfully in this way. Responsible Christian thought gladly responds to the resources God has made available to it and uses them well. We can't choose what to believe, but we do, in fact, choose what resources we will consult, how rigorously we will consult them, how we will interpret their deliverances to us, And how we will connect that knowledge with what else we think we know. For that entire process, we are entirely responsible. So I'm going to pray Philippians 1 over us and then have a couple concluding announcements and we'll go. God, I do pray for us as a community that our knowledge, that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that we would be able to discern what's best and that we could be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and that you would fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to your glory and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So to wrap, if you're interested in the book that Garrett has a discount on, you can sign up anyfocus.org book pretty easy. Um, If you want to give us your pen back, if you borrowed one of our pens, I think there's a couple of paper boxes out in the hallway. Other than that, thank you for being here. God bless, and make sure we leave this place perfect, okay? Thanks.